Chapter Thirteen of the Drums of Jeopardy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Drums of Jeopardy by Harold McGrath. Chapter Thirteen. To understand Kitty at this moment, one must be able to understand the Irish. And nobody does, or can, or will. Consider her twenty-four years, her corpuscular inheritance, the love of drama, and the love of adventure. Imagine possessing sound ideas of life, and the ability to apply them, and spiritually always galloping off on some broad highway, more often than not furnished by some engaging scoundrel of a novelist, and you will be able to construct a half-tone of Kitty Conover. That civilization might be actually on its deathbed, that positively half of the world was starving and dying and going mad, through the reaction of the German blight touched her in a detached way. She felt sorry, dreadfully sorry for the poor things, but as she could not help them, she dismissed them from her thoughts every morning after she had read the paper, the way most of us do here in these United States. You cannot grapple with the misery of an unknown person several thousand miles away. That which had taken place during the past twenty-four hours was to her a lark, a blind man's buff for grown-ups. It was not in her to tremble, to shudder, to hesitate, to weigh this and to balance that. Irish curiosity. Perhaps in the original that immortal line read, The Irish Russian were angels fear to tread, and some proofreader had a particular grudge against the race. When the elevator reached the seventeenth floor, the passengers surged forth, all except Kitty, who tarried. "'We don't carry to the eighteenth, miss.' "'I am Miss Conover,' she replied. "'I dared not tell you until we were alone.' "'I see.' The boy nodded, swept her with an appraising glance, and sent the elevator up to the loft. "'You understand?' If any one inquires about me, you don't remember. Yes, miss. The boss's orders. And if any one does inquire, you are to report at once. That, too. The boy rolled back the door, and Kitty stepped out upon a Larriston runner of rose hues and cobalt blue. She wondered what it cost Cuddy to keep up an establishment like this. There were fourteen rooms, seven facing the north, and seven facing the west, with glorious vistas of steam-wreathed roofs and brick matterhorns, and the dim horizon touching the sea. Fine rugs and tapestries and furniture gathered from the four ends of the world, but wholly livable and in no sense atmospheric of the museum. Cuddy had excellent taste. She had visited the apartment, but twice before, once in her childhood and again when she was eighteen. Cuddy had given a dinner in honor of her mother's birthday. She smiled as she recalled the incident. Cuddy had placed a box of candles at the side of her mother's plate, and told her to stick as many into the cake as she thought best. "'Hello,' said Cuddy, emerging from one of the doors. "'What the dickens have you been up to? My man has just telephoned me that he lost track of you in Wanamaker's.' Kitty explained, delighted. "'Well, well, if you can lose a man such as I set to watch you, you'll have no trouble shaking the others.' "'It was Karlov, Cuddy. How did you learn?' 
searched the morgue and found a half-tone of him. Positively Karloff. How is the patient? Harrison says he's pulling round amazingly. A tough skull. He'll be up for his meals in no time. How do you do it? she asked, with a gesture. Do what? Manage a place like this, in a busy district. It's the most wonderful apartment in New York. Riverside has nothing like it. It must cost, like, sixty. The building is mine, Kitty. That makes it possible. An uncle who knew I hated money and the responsibilities that go with it died and left it to me. Why, Cuddy, you must be rich. I'm sorry. What can I do? I can't give it away. But you don't have to work. Oh, yes, I do. I'm that kind. I'd die of a broken heart if I had to sit still. It's the game. Did Mother know? Yes. With the toe of a snug little bronze boot, Kitty drew an outline round a pattern in the rug. Love is a funny thing, was her comment. It sure is, old-timer, but what put that thought into your head? I was thinking how very much Mumsy must have been in love with Father. But she never knew that I loved her, Kitty. What's that got to do with it? If she had wanted money, you wouldn't have had the least chance in the world. Probably not. But what would you have done in your mother's place? Snapped you up like that, Kitty flashed back. You cheerful little, little liar. Say it, Kitty laughed. But am I a cheerful little liar? I don't know. It would be an awful temptation. Somebody to wait on you, heaps of flowers when you wanted them, beautiful gowns and thingummies and furs and limousines. I've often wondered what I should do if I found myself with love and youth on one side and money and attraction on the other. I've always been in straightened circumstances. I've never spent a dollar in all my days when I didn't think I ought to have held back three or four cents of it. You can't know, Cuddy, what it is to be poor and want beautiful things and good times. Of course, I couldn't marry just money. There would have to be some kind of a man to go with it. Someone interesting enough to make me forget sometimes that I'd thrown away a lover for a pocketbook. Would you marry me, Kitty? Are you serious? I suppose I am. No, I couldn't marry you, Cuddy. I should have always be having my mother's ghost as a rival. But supposing I fell in love with you? Then I'd always be doubting your constancy. But what queer talk! Kitty, you're a joy. Lordy, my luck in dropping in to see you yesterday. And a little whippersnapper like me calling a great man like you, Cuddy. Well, if it embarrasses you, you might switch to Papa once in a while. Kitty's laughter rang down the corridor. I'll remember that whenever I want to make you mad. Who's here? Nobody but Harrison and the nurse, both good citizens, and I've taken them into my confidence to a certain extent. You can talk freely before them. Am I to see the patient? Harrison says not. About Wednesday your two hawks will be sitting up. I've determined to keep the poor devil here until he can take care of himself. But he's flat broke. He said he had money. Well, Karloff's men stripped him clean. Have you any idea who he is? To be honest, that's one of the reasons why I want to keep him here. He's Russian, for all his Oxford English and his Italian gestures. And from his babble, I imagine he's been through seven kinds of hell. Torches and hobnailed boots and the incessant call for a woman named Olga, a young woman about eighteen. 
How did you find that out? From a photograph I found in the lining of his coat. A pretty blonde girl. Good heavens! Recollecting her dream. Where was it printed? Amateur photography. I'll pick it up on the way to the living room. It was nothing like the blonde girl of her dream. Still, the girl was charming. Kitty turned over the photograph. There was writing on the back. Russian, what does it say? To Ivan, from Olga with all her love. Cuddy was conscious of the presence of an indefensible malice in his tones. Why the deuce should he be bitter, glad that the chap had left behind his sweetheart? He knew exactly the basis of Kitty's interest, as utterly detached as that of a reporter going to a fire. On the day the patient could explain himself, Kitty's interest would automatically cease. An old dog in the manger. Malice. Cuddy, something dreadful has happened to this poor young woman. That's what makes him cry out the name. Caught in that horror, and probably he alone escaped. Is it heartless to be glad I'm an American? Do they let in these Russians? Not since the Trotsky regime. I imagine two hawks slipped through on some British passport. He'll probably tell us all about it when he comes round. But how do you feel after last night's bout? Alive! And I'm going on being alive forever and ever. Oh, those awful drums! They look like dead eyes in those dim corners. Tumpy-tump-tump, tumpy-tump-tump, she cried, linking her arm in his. What a gorgeous view! Just what I'm going to do when my ship comes in. Live in a loft. I really believe I could write up here. I mean, worthwhile things I could enjoy writing and sell. It's yours if you want it when I leave. And I'd have a fine time explaining to my friends. You old innocent, or are you so innocent? We do live in a cramped world, but I meant it. Don't forget to whistle down to Tony Bernini when you get back home tonight. I promise. Why the gurgle? Because I'm tremendously excited. All my life I've wanted to do mysterious things. I've been with the audience all the while, and I want to be with the actors. You'll give some man a wild dance. If I do, I'll dance with him. Now lead me to the cookies. She was the life of the tea table. Her wit, her effervescence, her whimsicalities amused even the prim Miss Frances. When she recounted the exploit of the camouflaged fan, Cuddy and Harrison laughed so loudly that the nurse had to put her finger on her lips. They might wake the patient. I am really interested in him, went on Kitty. I won't deny it. I want to see how it's going to turn out. He was very nice after I let him into the kitchen. A perfectly English manner and voice, and Italian gestures went off his guard. I feel so sorry for him. What strangers we races are to each other. Until the war we hardly knew the Canadians. The British didn't know us at all, and the French became acquainted with the British for the first time in history. And the German thought he knew us all, and really knew nobody. All the Russians I ever saw were peasants of the cattle type. So that the word Russian conjures up two pictures, the Grand Duke at Monte Carlo, and a race of men who wear long beards and never bathe except when it rains. Think of it. For the first time since God set mankind on earth, people are becoming acquainted. I never saw Russian of this type before. A leaf in the whirlpool. Anyhow, we'll keep him here until he's on his feet. By the way, never answer any telephone call. I mean, go anywhere on a call unless you are sure of a speaker. 
I begin to feel important. You are important. You have suddenly become a connecting link between this Karloff and the man we wish to protect. I'll confess I wanted you out of that apartment at first, but when I saw that you were bent on remaining, I decided to make use of you. You are going to give me a part in the play? Yes. You are to go about your affairs as always, just as if nothing has happened. Only when you wish to come here will you play any game like that of today. Then it will be advisable. Switch your route each time. Your real part is to be that of lure. Through you we shall gradually learn who Karloff's associates are. If you don't care to play the role, all you have to do is to move. The idea? I'm grateful for anything. You men will never understand. You go forth into the world each day. Politics, diplomacy, commerce, war. While we women stay at home and knit or darn socks or take care of the baby or make over our clothes and hats or do household work or play the piano or read. Never any adventure. Never any games. Never any clubs. The leaving your house to go to the office is an adventure. A train from here to Philadelphia is an adventure. We women are always craving it, and about all we can squeeze out of life is shopping and hiding the bills after marriage, and going to the movies before marriage with young men our fathers don't like. We can't even stroll the street and admire the handsome gowns of our more fortunate sisters the way you men do. When you see a pretty woman on the street, do you ever stop to think that there are ten at home eating their hearts out? Of course you don't. So, I'm going through with this to satisfy suppressed instincts, and I shan't promise to trot along as usual. They make attempt to kidnap you, Kitty. That doesn't frighten me. So I observe. But if they ever should have the luck to kidnap you, tell all you know at once. There's only one way up here, the elevator. I can get out to the fire escape, but none can get in from that direction, as the door is of steel. And, of course, you'll take me into your confidence completely? When the time comes... Half the fun in an adventure is the element of the unexpected, said Cuddy. Where did you first meet Stephanie Gregor? Captain Harrison laughed. He liked this girl. She was keen and could be depended upon as witness last night's work. Her real danger lay in being conspicuously pretty, in looking upon this affair as merely a kind of exciting game, when it was a tragedy. What makes you think I know Stephanie Gregor? asked Cuddy, genuinely curious. When I pronounced that name, you whirled upon me as if I had struck you. Very well. When we learn who Two Hawks is, I'll tell you what I know about Gregor. And in the meantime, you will be ceaselessly under guard. You are an asset, Kitty, to whichever side holds you. Captain Harrison is going to stay for dinner. Won't he join us? I'm going to a studio potluck with some girls, and it's time I was on the way. I'll let your Tony Bernini know. Home probably at ten. Cuddy went with her to the elevator, and when he returned to the tea-table, he sat down without speaking. "'Why not kidnap her yourself?' suggested Harrison. "'If you don't want her in this.' "'She would never forgive me.' "'If she found it out. "'She's the kind who would. "'What do you think of her, Miss Francis?' "'I think she is wonderful. "'Frankly, I should tell her everything, if there is anything more to be told.' When dinner was over, the nurse gone back to the patient and Captain Harrison to his club. Cuddy lit his odoriferous pipe and patrolled the windows of his study. 
Ever since Kitty's departure, he had been mulling over in his mind a plan regarding her future. To add a codicil to his will, leaving her five thousand a year, so Molly's girl might always have a dainty frame for her unusual beauty. The pity of it was that convention denied him the pleasure of settling the income upon her at once, while she was young. He might outlive her, you never could tell. Anyhow, he would see to the codicil. An accident might step in. He got out his chrysoprase. In one corner of the room there was a large portfolio such as artists use for their proofs and sketches, and from this he took a dozen twelve by fourteen inch photographs of beautiful women, most of them stage beauties of bygone years. The one on top happened to be Patty, the adorable Patty. Linda, Violetta, Lucia, Lord, what a nightingale she had been! He laughed, laid the photograph on the desk, and dipped his hand into a canvas bag filled with polished green stones which would have great commercial value if people knew more about them, for nothing else in the world is quite so beautifully green. He built tiaras above the lovely head and laid necklaces across the marvellous throat. Suddenly a phenomenon took place. The roguish eyes of the prima donna receded and vanished and slate-blue ones replaced them. The odd part of it was he could not dissipate the fancied eyes for the replacement of the actual. Patty with slate-blue eyes. He discarded the photograph and selected another. He began the game anew and was just beginning the attack on the problem uppermost in his mind when the phenomenon occurred again. Kitty's eyes. What infernal nonsense! Kitty had served merely to enliven his tender recollections of her mother, twenty-four and fifty-two. And yet, hadn't he just read that Maeterlinck, fifty-six, had married Mademoiselle de Han, many years younger? In a kind of resentful fury, he pushed back his chair and fell to pacing, eddies and loops and spirals of smoke whirling and sweeping behind him. The only light was centered upon the desk, so he might have been some god pacing a cloud-riven Olympus in the twilight. By and by he laughed, and the atmosphere mentally cleared. Matterling fifty-six, Cuddy fifty-two, were two different men. Cuddy might mix his metaphors occasionally, but he wasn't going to miss his ghosts. He returned to his singular game, more tiaras and necklaces, and his brain took firm hold of the theme which had in the beginning lured him to the green stones. Two hawks, that name bothered him. He knew he had heard it before, but never in the Russian tongue. It might be that the chap had been spoofing Kitty. Still, he had also called himself Hawksley. The smoke thickened, there were frequent flares of matches. One by one, Cuddy discarded the photographs, dropping them on the floor beside his chair, his mind boring this way and that for a solution. He had now come to the point where he had ceased to see the photographs or the green stones. The movements of his hands were almost automatic, and in this abstract manner he came to the last photograph. He built a necklace and even ventured an earring. It was a glorious face, black eyes that followed you, full-lipped, every indication of fire and genius. It must be understood that he rarely saw the photographs when he played this game. It wasn't an amusing pastime, a mental relaxation. It was a unique game of solitaire, the photographs and chrysophrase being substituted for cards, and in some inexplicable manner it permitted him to concentrate upon whatever problem filled his thoughts. It was purely accidental that he saw Patty tonight or recalled her art. 
Coming upon the last photograph without having found a solution of the riddle of two hawks, he relaxed the mental pressure and his sight reestablished its ability to focus. "'Good Lord!' he ejaculated. He seized the photograph excitedly, scattering the green stones. She, the Calabrian, the enchanting coloratura, who had vanished from the world at the height of her fame, thirty-odd years gone. Two hawks! Cuddy saw himself at twenty, in the pit at La Scala, with music-mad Milan all about him. Two hawks! He remembered now. The nickname the young bloods had given her because she had been eternally guarded by her mother and aunt, fierce-beaked Calabrians, who had been determined that Rosa should never throw herself away on some beggarly Adonis. And this chap was her son, yesterday rich and powerful, with a name that was open sesame wherever he went, today hunted, penniless, and forlorn. Cuddy sank back in his chair, stunned by the revelation. In that room yonder. End of chapter 13